Okay, thank you everyone for your patience. Technology was not our friend today. <laughs> um, thank you for waiting. Welcome to SIS 13, Psych Twister, using metaphors, mindfulness, and values to promote behavioral change. Please give a quick round of applause for our faculty. We have Kristen Slater and Heather King. Both of them are pain psychologists at Stanford. Is it working now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you, everyone. We're so excited to have you here today. We're going to be talking about psychological twister, using metaphors, mindfulness, and values to promote change. We have no disclosures. Today's learning objectives include um, covering the difference between cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy. We're going to be defining what this psychological flexibility model is and going through the different components and then how they would relate to clinical care. And then we're going to briefly go over the outcomes using acceptance and commitment therapy for the treatment of chronic pain. We have an incredible problem-solving machine between our two ears, right? Our brain is pretty remarkable and that it is able to think through uh, seemingly simple but actually pretty complex processes, right? We're able to evaluate things, compare, contrast. Um, it's really this pretty um, evolved problem-solving capabilities that we have that allow us as human beings to be the most evolved species on the earth. Um, this works extremely well in our external world, right? Think about how you even got here today. You use the if-then problem-solving mentality to get yourself here to Las Vegas, right? So if I want to go to a conference and I live in California, then I have to book my flight, book my hotel, pack, grab an Uber. It's actually pretty complicated. And yet when we just follow our thought processes for, for what they are, we show up and here you all are today. Cognitive behavioral therapy, um, we're, we're um, pretty, pretty certain most of you are familiar with CBT. Yes, everyone heard of CBT, use CBT? Okay, so we're not gonna go over it too much, but um, as you're familiar, cognitive behavioral therapy looks at how our thoughts influence our behaviors and how we feel, right? So it's really um, thoughts that drive the show here. This utilizes our problem-solving machine, right, for our internal world, too. So if we're not doing something or we are doing something that we view as a problem or we're not feeling the way we want to feel, we go back to the thoughts, right? Let's change the thoughts to then change or get a different outcome. Cognitive behavioral therapy looks at developing coping skills. These are really just solutions that we're looking at to address the problems that we have. Acceptance and commitment therapy is actually foundationally different in that instead of changing the thoughts or focusing so much on the content of our thoughts, we're more looking at the function of our thoughts and just relating to our thoughts differently without really changing them. It is a behavioral-based therapy. ACT is a third-wave therapy um, in the behavior tradition, so we're still interested in changing behavior, but it's just based off this premise that it's more about our experience and the context of our experience rather than the content of our thoughts that's important. And we're gonna look at that a little bit more. 
ACT is also unique in that it's based on something called RFT or relational frame theory. Those of you that have looked into this know it can be quite complex, so we're not going to go into it uh, too much for the purposes of today. Um, basically, all you need to know is RFT uh, is this idea that language, right, or the development of human language, it really creates this whole network, right, of responses that we have as humans. It utilizes that problem-solving machine, problem-solving mentality. And you're probably still a little confused by this, so quick example to show you. A little audience participation here. So fill in the blank for me. Mary had a... Thank you. How the heck did you all know that? <laughs> right? It came up automatically. You just filled in the blank, which is actually pretty remarkable. You didn't even have to put too much effort into that. Everyone knew. But yet, look at what had to happen. This is actually just symbols, right? Letters are symbols. We put these symbols together to make words. We as humans give these words meaning. We string three simple words together, and there you have it. And watch what else this may have triggered for you. Right? So if you're like me and you have a one-and-a-half-year-old toddler at home, maybe you can imagine him like bopping around. Mary had a little lamb, and you get this big, goofy smile on your face. makes you happy. Maybe you're looking at this picture, and you're saying, Mary looks kind of mean. Right? She's like yelling at this poor little lamb, poor guy, and you feel bad for him. And so that evokes sympathy or empathy. Right? So notice how just words and language can really evoke this whole network of responses in us because we're human which is pretty benign if we're looking at Mary Had a Little Lamb or nursery rhymes. But think about in our population, when we're working with patients. Um, I know Heather and Jamie gave a great talk yesterday on communication and language and really looking at, you know, what does the diagnosis mean to the patient? What does their pain mean to them and what's going on? So instead of Mary Had a Little Lamb, what if Mary had a degenerative disc disease? <laughs> or what if Mary had a complicated you know, pain uh, symptoms that no one could really explain. Think about the networks that that may evoke for Mary then and how complicated that can be. Just those three little words, for us, maybe we, may, maybe we just look at that as a diagnosis, but think about what that activates in her. So really looking at how CBT and ACT are foundationally different if you're familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, you know that we're trying to replace these maladaptive or these unhelpful thoughts and replace them with thoughts that are more based in reality or more helpful. You could see how maybe that would be a problem in that our brain and certainly our nervous system does not have a delete button. So it's hard to unthink something that you think. It's also hard to, you know, think about a painful memory that you have. Now just don't think about that. Subtract it. Delete it. Anybody have a delete button? If you do, please let us know. We could really use it in the therapy that we do. So think about it this way. This is sort of a, a fun experiment. Imagine you're walking across the street. Jamie and I saw this today. There's like this amazing gelato store. I don't know if anybody has gone there, but I'm definitely going to hit it. You have. See, I'm going to hit it after the talk. <laughs> Just looks amazing. So what I want you to not do is think about chocolate gelato. Cre you know, it's hot outside, this creamy, delicious gelato. It's warm. It's like dripping. You're 
licking it. It's just delicious. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Who's not thinking about gelato? How do you know you're not thinking about gelato? I don't like but you're still thinking about it. If you are not thinking about something, then you're thinking about it. So let's say instead of thinking about instead of not thinking about gelato, we're going to replace it. Okay. So instead of thinking about gelato, I want you to think about a blue bucket instead. Okay. What happens when you think about a blue bucket? Why are you thinking about a blue bucket? That is correct. So you can see how some of these strategies that seem simple are a little more complicated. It's hard to unthink something. It's hard to forget a memory. And so you can see when we're trying constantly to not think about something and really fight against it, or, okay, so I'm not supposed to think about that, I'm supposed to think about this instead, we can really get entangled in our thought process and it can start to feel like this. Right? We're bogged down by our thoughts. We're hooked by our thoughts. We're so you know, worried and consumed by what you are or aren't supposed to think that it can start to feel pretty overwhelming. And this can actually feel a little paralyzing too. Right? This is where the thought, like we get caught up in our head too much, well, then what are you doing with your day and what are you doing with your life if you're just too busy analyzing and thinking through things too much? Right. So App takes the perspective. Again, it's not about so much the content of our thoughts, but what if we can just observe our thoughts, acknowledge our thoughts, surely. We're not repressing them. We're not trying to change them, though. We're just looking at them, observing them, leaving them for what they are, getting some distance from them, this frees us up. We're not so entangled and entrapped by our thoughts. This frees us up to do what actually matters, right? This frees us up so we have choice when we don't feel so bogged down on this problem-solving control strategies that become our thought processes. Another uh, differentiation between CBT and ACT are kind of their perspectives on pain. So CBT perspective would say that pain is a problem, right? Pain is unacceptable, and this is true for both physical pain and also emotional pain too, right? We're trying to fix the problem. I don't want to feel anxious. I don't want to feel depressed. I want this to go away, and until it goes away, I can't live a good life. That's kind of the rules that our problem-solving mind comes up with, right? So how many times have you guys heard your patients say, once I get better, once I get this pain under control, then I'll be able to go back to work, or then I'll be able to play with my kids, or then I'll be able to live this life that I want to live. Right? So really, if pain is the problem, is that actually the problem, that thought process? Um, I have a, a perfect example. Um, she didn't know she was a perfect example for this talk, but she, she walked into my office um, last week, sweet, caring, compassionate woman in her early 30s, desperately wanted to have a child. That was what was important to her. And she came into my office saying, I need your help. You know, I, I was diagnosed with a cervical condition. They told me I'm never going to get full strength back in my arm. So I need your help realizing that I'm never going to be able to have a kid again. Right? So you can see the problem solving if then, if pain doesn't go away, then I can't live this value that's so truly meaningful for her. ACT takes the perspective then that if you're human, pain will be there. 
as a part of the human condition, as a part of life, right? Think about the most important things to you, whether it's your friends or your family or your job, all those things that matter. Have they ever been hard? Have they ever been painful? Right? It's part of it. As humans, we experience the spectrum of emotions. We can't pick and choose. I just want to feel joy and happiness. I don't want to feel sadness. Get rid of that junk. Right? Pain is inevitable. But suffering right, is a choice. And suffering, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, is how much we struggle against that pain. That we do have choice in. So how many of you have patients that do the yes but? Right. Yes, I understand that that's important, but I can't do it because I have pain. This is, I hear this every day. And how many of you tried, have tried to rationalize with them when they do the yes but? Is that fun? I did a burnout talk. I maybe could have started with this one. Um, when you're engaged in the struggle with your patient, it's frustrating. It's frustrating for you. It's frustrating frustrating for them. So the example that Kristen gave is perfect. You know, yes, having a child is more important to me than anything in the world, but I can't because I have pain. Actually looks at how do we replace but with and, and how does that actually change some of the rules that they've set forward or set forth for themselves. I'm going to give you an example of how we would do this. So one of the most powerful strategies in acceptance and commitment therapy is really addressing this control agenda. It's also called creative hopelessness. And it starts off with helping the patient understand what is the cost of control for them. Because up until that point, they don't see control as a problem. It's a coping skill. If it hurts for me to go to work, I'm just going to not work and then I control my pain. Or if it's too painful to sit, I'm just never going to socialize again because it's too painful. So they've created all these coping strategies around control. And it's not that that's wrong. It's usually that it's not functionally helpful. And that's what we're trying to get at. So we'll start off by asking them, like, what are you, what are you trying to get rid of? And oftentimes, it's the thoughts they don't want. Feelings. I don't want to feel anxious or sad or worthless or lonely. Experiences that are difficult for them. And then sensations, right? I want to get rid of my pain. And we'll start off by saying, okay, so, and you're really approaching this with curiosity and compassion. Because this is a very emotional exercise for the patient. So we'll go through, great, let's go through all the things that you have tried to manage your pain. And I'm telling you, the patients I work with get an A-plus for effort because they have tried every single thing that has ever been recommended to them, and then some. So they will come up with a list of something like this. And by the way, these are all things that people in the room have probably recommended for them. It's not that they're wrong. And I think this is where people get a little caught up in this. It's not that they're wrong, but what you want to help them to recognize is, okay, wonderful, wow, this is so much, it's amazing, like you have tried so hard to get your life back. Has this helped in the short run, short term? I'd say, you know, it's usually 50-50. Okay, well, what about long term? You know, has this been helpful? Probably not, because they're sitting in my office, and who really wants to be with a pain psychologist when they have chronic pain? It's usually not their first stop. 
I'm hoping that changes, but, you know. And then you go through, okay, so in the long term, what has this cost you? Has this improved your quality of life? Is your life better for doing these things? The answer is no. This is an incredibly dysregulating exercise. Patients are angry, and they're sad, and they're highly emotional, and it's really important that you're able to just sit with them with that because they have to hit that place of creative hopelessness to be able to recognize that what their work, what they've done, even though it makes sense, has not made their life better. Until they reach that, they're not willing, and I mean they're not willing, to make that shift that maybe there's something different. And that's really what we're trying to get them to do. It's kind of like you burn down a forest for new growth. And that's the goal of this. Um, But I think as the provider, you really have to be prepared for how challenging this is and to really sit with that patient and recognize, like, this is really painful, isn't it? And so, you know, as as Heather mentioned, it can be difficult uh, for, you know, clearly the patient, but also as providers. We got into this field because we want to help and we want to fix, and it's just, you know, we, we chose chronic pain, which can be challenging because there is not a cure and there is not a fix. And so uh, one thing that I really love about ACT is it is applicable for the patients for sure, but it's also something that um, it's important for providers to actively practice in the moment as well, and and you can kind of feel how profound and and helpful it can be. Um, So what we want to introduce you to next is something called the ACT Hexaflex, you're probably saying, though, what? Um, has anyone seen this before? Is this brand new for people? Some of you? Have, okay. So fairly new. Um, this can feel a little complicated and overwhelming. So we just want to kind of walk you through uh, this uh, very briefly. Um, we were talking this morning, like, we're going to give you the trailer to the trailer <laughs> to each one of these components of the Act Hexaflex, just so you can become, you know, we're just hoping to kind of Um, spark your curiosity and wanting to learn more about these things. So uh, these different uh, six different components are all part of ACT. They all work together really nicely. They're very synergistic and that they feed off of each other. So there is some overlap, but they all also have kind of distinct properties about them. Um, So the first one we'll look at is acceptance. Um, We also like to use the term willingness for this. It can kind of be used interchangeably. Um, but what is acceptance and how would we present that to patients? So meet the pain monster. This is the pain monster. We would use this metaphor with patients. So as Heather was mentioning before, that struggle with control over pain, um, you can imagine, you know, we, and we ask the people, so imagine that you are in this struggle, you are in this battle with your pain. And again, this is both appropriate for physical pain chronic pain and also um, you know, emotional pain. So our, our regret and our anxiety and our sadness and our self-doubt, every, just imagine everything you struggle with, right? And you can feel that tug and that pull. And every time you try to control it, it pulls right back. So you're in this constant, and it's a lifelong battle because again, remember, pain is part of being a human. As long as you're a human, you're gonna be in this battle with the monster, right? And it's push and pull back and forth 
And you can, it's actually really powerful. Part of what I love about ACT is it's very experiential in that you, know, you can get up and actually do this with patients. Have a rope in your room, have them pretend that I'm the pain monster and they're on that end and you, you, know, you pull back and forth with them and they get it after a few minutes, right? They get exhausted. Because think about when you're trying so hard to control all your energy, all your time, all your resources, all your effort is going into this battle. What's happening with the rest of your life? Right? What else are you missing out on because you're so entrenched and engaged in this battle? So then we ask people, what are you going to do? Is there a different alternative than just continuing this back and forth pull battle with yourself? Anyone know the answer? Drop the rope. Very good. So instead of realizing that you know, you're never going to come up with a solution to chronic pain, because if anyone had a solution to chronic pain, this conference would be empty. And yet, look at how many people are here. Right? And so instead, drop the rope. Right? If there was a war and no one showed up to battle, what would that look like? Right? So that's what acceptance means, and that's how we kind of get patients to wrap their head around the acceptance. And now the beauty of this and why you would want to drop the rope is now if all your energy isn't going into this battle, where can it go? Right? And sometimes patients feel a little like, well, now what? Right? So I'm willing to drop the rope, but now what do I do? And that's where we'll see the rest of the model kind of come into play. But this now is when they are freed up to do things differently. Acceptance is also understanding that once you've dropped the rope, you've also freed up the monster to follow you around to do those things that are important to you as well, right? So we haven't gotten rid of the monster. That would be another control strategy. That would you'd just be right back in that battle. And sometimes you have to go back and forth to this cost of control exercise where if they say, well, you know, maybe now the monster's dead, cool. Nope, they're not getting it. <laughs> you got to go back. Um, but as soon as they realize that once they're free, as long as they're willing to have the monster be free to show up with them, that's acceptance. I think what is interesting is once patients drop the rope, they immediately want to know what to do. <laughs> and, of course, we don't know what they need to do, which is why the rest of the model comes into play to help them figure out what that looks like because they have no idea what it looks like. And we actually don't know what it's going to look like for them either. Um, so this is a, a fun psychological term, diffusion. Um, so patients come in and they are fused with their thoughts. They are fused with their reasons, rules, judgments, what they think their future is going to be like. Like they have all these, has, have you guys noticed this with your patients? They have all these rules around their pain and what they can do and what they can't do. And um, when you, if you try challenge their rules, then they give the reasons of why they have those rules, and you just get caught up in a battle that you're just never going to win. It's very frustrating. So what you want to do is if you think of two pieces of metal that are fused together, it means you cannot see between them. They look like they're one. With diffusion, what you're trying to do is pull those thoughts away enough so that patients can actually see their thoughts if you think of your thoughts as fingers, right, and you're looking through the world like this, what would it be like if you actually looked at your thoughts instead of through your thoughts? It would be very different. So diffusion is a strategy that can help people get some distance from those rules, reasons, judgments, without actually changing the content of them. So 
This would be if your thoughts were barriers. I don't know what that monster is, but he's clearly a barrier. So instead of your thoughts getting in your way of moving forward, you would then take them with you. So you can, I can have a thought that I can't stand up here and give a talk, and then I can get up here and I can give a talk. You don't have to allow your thoughts to dictate your behaviors. You don't have to believe everything that you think. You also don't have to challenge it. You can actually just take it with you. And one of the strategies that um, Kristen and I find to be really powerful with our patients is using the leaves on a stream. Has anyone done that meditation with their patients? Wonderful. So it can be helpful to guide them through a meditation where they identify their thoughts, their feelings, their memories, their physical sensations that they've been struggling with. And they would imagine that they're sitting next to a stream, they place whatever it is that they've been struggling with, they place it on the leaf, and they just allow it to pass in its own time. You're not trying to get rid of it. You're just allowing it to flow. And it's fascinating when I do this because some patients will say, it got stuck on a rock and it wouldn't move. (laughs) Yeah, sure, okay. Let it be there. There is safety in getting distance from our thoughts. And there's many different types of diffusion exercises, but this is definitely one of our favorites. One thing that's kind of nice about diffusion as well is ACT really encourages people to come up with strategies that are kind of unique to them. So there's a lot of creativity in in diffusion as well, which is cool. Um, So the next kind of point that we want to hit on is this idea of being present. So we clearly don't want to diffuse from all of our thoughts, right? So say just, for example, you come up with a problem where the computer's not working and you have to give a (laughs) talk in a few minutes. I don't want to just notice those thoughts of, oh, isn't it interesting that the computer's not working? No, I want to actually engage in those thoughts and jump into action. Again, it works really well. Our problem-solving machine works great in our external world, right? But what are those thoughts that we do want to diffuse from, and how do we know the difference? And that's part of where really being present comes into play, is being aware of your stuff, right? Being aware of your thoughts, connecting with your thoughts, knowing which ones to engage in and which ones maybe aren't so helpful, and so you would just rather get some distance from them. So we can see where being present works really well in this model. So how do you relate to your mind? Um, If you guys were in uh, Heather's talk last night, maybe you saw this slide. I think it's really powerful. So imagine your mind is a dog. What what does your journey with this dog look like? Does it look like this? (laughs) Where you are being yanked and jerked around by the dog and you are just, the dog is running the show, right? You are just trying your best to hold on for dear life. When we are not present and mindful and we're getting really caught up in the content of our thoughts, this is what this feels like. Mindfulness then and being present looks a little more like this. Where the dog is still there, we haven't sold the dog, we haven't gotten rid of the dog, dog is still right there with you, but the relationship to the dog is different, right? Now the dog is walking alongside of you, you are choosing what direction you go and that's pretty clear dog is not running the show. So this is what we mean by being present, taking it along for the ride, allowing it to be. 
I love this slide too. Another dog. We're dog people. That we must have shown people. up when we were doing this presentation. So another component of mindfulness is, you know, with ACT, we are um, really asking people to confront um, some things that they've been really scared of for a very long time. They've been trying to push away and ignore and repress and fight against discomfort, right? Whether that's, again, physical or emotional discomfort. And so mindfulness comes from a perspective of kindness and compassion and a non-judgmental approach, right? And so from an ACT perspective, if we're willing to recognize those thoughts that can be painful, doing it with self-compassion in a way where we're taking out the judgment is really vital. Another reason why mindfulness, like how it comes into play with this whole model, is we're also trying to activate people, to get them out in their world doing things in their life. And so if they do decide, maybe this guy hasn't left the house for a week, and so he's making a choice using ACT to go for a walk, we actually want him enjoying that walk and savoring that walk and feeling the sun on his face and being present in his journey you know, what's the point if he's going for a walk and yet he's so caught up in his problem-solving past, present, I've done this walk before and I didn't have pain and now it's awful. You know, we want them to really be in the moment as they're challenging themselves to engage in their life. I think one of the um, confusions with mindfulness and relaxation, how many... Those of you who are doing mindfulness training with your patients, so they come back and say, well, I did that and it didn't work. I love it. I'm like, what, what did you think was going to happen? So, you know, relaxation, you know, guided imagery, diaphragmatic breathing, we are trying to change something. We're trying to pump the brakes on the nervous system and literally feel different. That is not the goal of mindfulness. The, mind, the goal of mindfulness is to be present um, like Kristen was mentioning, non-judgmentally, be compassionate, and to really be able to take in, you know, what's in the present moment. It's like our, our body is in the present, but our mind often is not. And so that can really help to get them connected to what matters to them. So the next uh, part of the hexaflex uh, is often skipped <laughs> practitioners will say it's confusing I don't understand how to use it I don't know how to talk to my patients about this um, but I would say this is probably one of the most powerful strategies and it's called self as context it really helps you to get in touch with this perspective taking part of yourself it's, it's what we call the observer self and one of the uh, metaphors that we use is called the chessboard. So imagine that the clear pieces on the chessboard are all of the positive memories, the positive emotions, the good feelings, everything good that has ever happened to you in your life. And then the solid pieces on the chessboard are the opposite. It's all the bad things. It's the pain. It's the suffering. It's the sadness, the bad things that have happened to you. Imagine that these pieces are just battling back and forth. You know, some days the clear pieces are winning, and I'm like, woohoo, life is great. This is awesome. I'm going to kick this chronic pain and get back to work. And then the next day I've got a flare, and I'm like, life sucks. This is awful. I knew I shouldn't have done that. And you just get caught in this battle back and forth and back and forth. What if you were the chessboard? 
not just the pieces that are battling back and forth. The chessboard would give you that perspective that you have been with yourself through every single moment of your entire life, the good, the bad, the neutral. And there's a part of yourself that was there then and is thinking about it now. It's actually an incredibly safe place to be because it's not in, that part of you is not involved in the battle. It's observing the battle. And so this metaphor can help people sort of get connected to that so that they're not constantly sucked into the good moments, the bad moments, and feeling like those moments are defining everything. There's actually a separate part of yourself that can observe what has happened to you across time. And getting people connected to this can be very powerful. It's like that, that safe place that we have such a hard time getting connected to. So values is the next part that we're going to uh, talk about here. Um, values is really vital and to me the backbone of ACT. Um, in ACT we are, again, asking people to do difficult, challenging things that they've probably avoided for a very long time. And so, you know, oftentimes they're asking, well, why would I do that? You know, why, why, are, why would I go out and, and, you know, hang out with my friends when I know that's going to make my pain worse? Right? Mm -hmm. So values, we really want people to connect strongly with their values. This is more than just asking them, what's important to you? What matters to you? Right? We do a deep dive with them because we really want them in touch with what is important to them. That will give them the motivation right, to move forward with these um, oftentimes challenging behaviors that ACT asks them to, to follow through with. So we think of values as a compass, north, south, east, and west. Very different from goals, so goals we can cross them off the list, check things off along the way. Values are things that we never fully reach or comprehend, right? We never fully reach our values. We can keep going. Even though, you know, I, I view my relationship with my husband as great, I can always be better, right? You can always continue to improve and, and move towards your values. There is... Um, has anyone read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl? Great book. Psychiatrist went through the Survive the Holocaust. Um, great quote in there. He says, he who has a why can bear almost any how. And you know, it's kind of wordy, but if you think about it, what that means is if you know why you're doing something, you will find a way to be able to do it. Right? That's your, that is your, your why, and we really want people to know very clearly their whys. One strategy that we use to um, help people kind of recognize, so it's a two-step process. Not only what are your values, but how are these values showing up in your life? How well are you living your values right now? Um, there's an exercise created by Russ Harris called the bullseye exercise that we will do with our patients. So it goes like this. Imagine, so the, this person has identified these different things as their values in their life. The bullseye is if they are fully living those values. They are completely content with how these values, how these um, actions are showing up in their life. Right? We ask them, so where, where do you fall on this? How close are you? How well are you living these values in your life? So for the person, for example, that says, my relationships are really important to me. My friends, I've had them for forever. They mean a lot to me. But this is also the person that's saying, 
you know, every time my friends call, I cancel on them, or I, I, they invite me out to dinner, but I don't know how close I'll be able to park to the restaurant. What if I have to walk a really far distance to get there, right? So I just call and cancel. Or I don't want my family to see me like this. I don't want my family to see me in pain, so I'll just retreat and, and stay in my room. They would probably not be very close to the bullseye, right? So their actions are not reflective of how important that value is to them. They're missing the mark a little bit. And when they see that discrepancy or that distance from how it's showing up in their life now to where you know, they want to be with their values, this difference is what we call values illness. This is also a powerful exercise because you know, they are figuring this out for themselves, and th this is giving them motivation for what matters for them. We're not telling them what to do. We're not telling them, hey, you should exercise. You should eat well. If exercise and nutrition are important to them, and this is something they want to work on, great. But they are really intrinsically discovering these things for themselves and how far off they are, and that helps drive them to make some changes. So we don't want the values exercise to just be a cognitive experience. Like, none of this matters if they're not following through with behavior. ACT is a behaviorally-based processing therapy. Like, this is, you can't just think about it. Um, you can't just say, well, my values are this. It's like you have to follow through with behavior. Um, I annoyingly say to my patients all the time, I'm like, what would I see you doing? what do you mean? I'm like, what would I see you doing? If you were engaging in your values and I followed you around, I promise I won't, but if I did, like, what would I see you doing in your relationships? Going out to dinner, like, would you be on your phone? Would you be engaged? You know, what are the things that you're doing? Would you be at your kid's soccer game? Would you be volunteering? Like, what would I see you doing? And this is where committed action can be so powerful. So they've identified their values. They have these other strategies to kind of sit with and diffuse from the thoughts that are unhelpful. But then we have to get them into behaviors. So <clears throat> when patients start to struggle with their mind telling them they can't do this, I always go back to, well, you can keep doing the same thing you're doing. You can. You can choose to. Like, this isn't, these aren't my values. These aren't the things that I've come up with. These are the things that are important to you. You can keep doing what you're doing and get the exact same result, or you could try something different. And so we really want to make sure that we're following through with getting, you know, what would the behaviors be that would be in line with those values so they really understand what they could be doing uh, to move their life in a direction that they choose. So there's a difference between understanding this cognitively versus experientially. And I think for those um, in, in the room that haven't done ACT, it can be like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great, but it doesn't make sense until you are actually sitting with a patient, you're going through this. The, the change that happens with this is unbelievable. It is. I mean, the change that I see in my patients when I take them through this is just unreal. They truly do get their lives back, and it's the life that they actually want. So this isn't just knowing with the mind, right? How many of us know you should do something? And you don't do it. <laughs> so this is really about experiencing it, right? John Kabat-Zinn has that great quote where it's like learning mindfulness by reading a book is like going into a, a restaurant and eating the menu. This is really experiential. You have to feel it, live it, breathe it. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. 
Again, this isn't a cognitive therapy. It's an experiential behavioral therapy. And we also um, invite providers, if you're interested in ACT, like go, go through it yourself, too, mm-hmm. because then you can really feel the profound effects of it as well. And then once, once, you're, once you're in, it's pretty life-changing. It's pretty amazing. And then that gives you further motivation to help others kind of discover this as well. All right, so you guys made it. We walked you through the ACT Hexaflex here. Um, we obviously don't present this to patients because they just give you that glazed <laughs> overlook and walk out of your office. Um, but we do want them to understand what all this means. And so oftentimes we'll do it in a way that's a little bit more patient-friendly um, through metaphors. Again, ACT uses a lot of metaphors, as, as you've seen. Um, so we thought we'd share one with you today that kind of ties all these different things together and see if you can kind of pick out the different components of the psychological flexibility model in this metaphor. So the metaphor goes like this. Imagine that you are drifting on a boat out in the middle of the ocean. And this might sound kind of relaxing at first, but the thing is, is everything that matters to you, your friends, your family, your community, your church, your job, all the things that give you meaning and purpose are back at the shore. And you're actually not alone on this boat either, to complicate things a little more. (laughs) So down below deck, lie this vast horde of monsters and demons that represent your internal struggle, your internal battles. So the I'm not good enough monster is down there, and the anxiety monster lives down there, and the pain monster lives down there. And the thing is, is every time you move your ship in the direction of the shore, those monsters clamor up from below deck, and they get in your face, and they snarl, and they yell, and they're ugly and scary. And so naturally, you cut the engine and you just keep floating. You stay stagnant. You strike a deal with them. Okay, so if I don't move towards my values, if I just float out here and circle, then you'll stay below deck? And they say, yep, deal. Okay. So this seems like it works short term, right? But then you get bored and you get lonely. And remember, everything that matters to you is at the shore. So then you start to problem solve a little bit. Well, maybe I'll get really smart and I'll just you know, sleep during the day and strike up the engine at night while they're sleeping and then I'll just move in the direction kind of stealthily while they're asleep. But then that doesn't work and they show up at night and now they're even scarier because you're in the dark with them, right? And now you're frustrated that your problem solving didn't work. So now you have a new frustration monster down below deck as well. You can see how this continues to grow. And then one day you realize the power that these monsters have is your belief in their threats, your belief in what they say. If you buy in to what they're telling you, then they do have the power, right? Then you're drifting. But if you realize that, okay, what if I did what was important to me, moved towards the shore, and the monsters were up above deck in my face with me, but I just kind of recognized them as chatter, right? And their threats were just going on in the background here, then I can continue to move towards my values. So you can see how this kind of pulls the hexaflex together, right? The values are all the things that are on the shore. The committed action will be steering the boat toward that. And then a lot of the other strategies, like being mindful, noticing the chatter, getting some diffusion from that, having that you know, self as context to be able to recognize that 
yes, these things are here, but I actually can, you know, get some emotional distance, not get entangled in them. Uh, this is a great metaphor to sort of pull everything together and helping patients recognize that they can move toward their values. These things are going to show up. We all have our monsters, demons in the boat. It's just that patients are much more familiar with those now, and they don't allow them to affect their behavior. So, you know, ACT has been around not as long as CBT, but I am very happy to say that the evidence that's come out is supporting ACT as an empirically validated treatment for chronic pain. And even though we are not focusing on pain intensity, lo and behold, it does help with pain intensity. It reduces pain interference as well. It can also help with depression and anxiety, uh, emotional distress. And although we are not changing their thoughts, it still is reducing that catastrophic thinking that's so common uh, within this population and decreasing their fear of movement. And so it also increases this willingness to have pain in the pursuit of things that matter to them, which is what acceptance actually is. And it helps with this psychological flexibility so that they're able to determine when they're going to engage in a behavior that's important to them and not get so caught up in this problem-solving approach. And these are some of the resources that we recommend for patients. So The Happiness Trap is a great self-help book. It's not specifically for chronic pain, uh, but it's written by Russ Harris. It's a great way to learn the language. Like I bought this when I first started off uh, in ACT to understand the language that he uses because it's just so friendly in how he describes things. It's very patient-friendly. And then The Living Beyond Your Pain uh, is the green book. This is a self-help book for patients uh, that has this ACT approach, and it's very helpful. So if we send patients uh, out into the community to work with an ACT therapist that doesn't specialize in pain, maybe there's not a pain psychologist in their area, um, I know Kristen has recommended to them that they can take this book uh, to that ACT therapist so that they can work through uh, the ACT model for the treatment of chronic pain. And then the other one, uh, Headspace, Mindfulness Coach, uh, these are just apps uh, that you can use uh, with your patients. These are sort of the favorites that we find. And then some resources for you as providers if you're interested in learning more. Um, again, today we are just giving you a very, very brief overview. We hope that we've kind of sparked your curiosity a little bit. And if you do want to learn more, these are some good places to start. Um, Act Made Simple, again, by Russ Harris. Um, if you're brand new to Act, this is a great starting point. Again, it is Act Made Simple. <laughs> um, it's very accurate in the title. And then if you want more of a kind of deep dive into the relational frame theory, for example, this Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life by Steve Hayes, who is actually the creator of Act, um, is very theoretical. But uh, if you are serious about Act and you do want to be an Act provider, we really recommend that you take that dive and really try to digest and understand this. Um, I think one thing that we love about ACT is even though we've been you know, practicing it for, for years now, we still don't fully understand it. <laughs> and that's um, kind of the beauty of it is it's always a process to, to learn uh, more. Um, this ACBS, uh, another thing that we love about ACT is it's um, very communal. So this is a community for people that have shared resources. People will share different metaphors, worksheets. Um, there's forums. It's a great 
uh, thing to check out. And then uh, more pain specific, so none of these are specific to chronic pain except the Integrative Pain Science Institute, which is fairly new, developed actually by a physical therapist, uh, Joe Tata. He just has an interdisciplinary um, online community um, that is very kind of ACT-centric. Um, so we encourage you to check out these things if you're interested to learn more. I know we ran over our time a little bit. We really appreciate your willingness to, to hang in here through the technical difficulties. And, and we do hope that you found this to be helpful, and, and we'll stick around if there's any questions. But thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.